Cosmos greetings, everybody. Welcome to Prolet Cults, a new irregularly published podcast covering recent news and leftist views from the new neoliberal space age. On the show, I hope to cover recent ufological happenings, the paranormal and the parapolitical, futurism and science fiction. I'm your host, A.M. Gitlitz, a.k.a. A.P. Andy from the Antifada. I'm an independent researcher on these subjects, so thanks for checking out my first episode. In a moment, I'll talk to Stephanie Monahan, who wrote Lights in the Sky, a paper and a presentation for the Theorizing the Web conference. And we'll also talk about the new DSA caucus, which I think is the Posadist caucus kind of gone mainstream. Before that, I'm going to get into some space news. Last year was the 50th anniversary of 1968 and the massive anti-authoritarian riots, demonstrations, and occupations around the world. This year is going to be the 50th anniversary of something perhaps equally momentous, Neil Armstrong's historic landing on the moon, a moment which, despite the looming nuclear war and the militaristic overtones of the Cold War and the space race, united all of humanity in the hopes of a collective better future, But today, I think 50 years later, we're clearly in a much worse spot. Saw a great example of this on April 12th when the Bereshit, an unmanned craft, crashed into the surface of the moon. The Bereshit was a privately funded project of Space IL, an Israeli firm. It would have made Israel the fourth country after the US, USSR, and China to achieve a controlled landing on the surface of the moon. And it was launched from a SpaceX Falcon 9 from Cape Canaveral in late February, and it made it all the way to 10 kilometers from the surface of the moon when it suddenly lost contact with ground control, only to regain it a few moments later when it was crashed, destroying the hopping component of the lander that would have allowed it to move around the surface. Um, So this was a part of a long-running series of failures for competitors of Google's Lunar X Prize which offered $30 million to the first private firm that could achieve a moon landing without government assistance by 2014. 2014 came and went, and nobody was even close to to doing this, so they moved it to 2018. And then in 2018, uh, still, no one was even close to landing anything on the moon, so they canceled it in March of last year. Uh, But Space IL and a couple of the other competitors in the project kept it going. And what's, what's notable uh, about Space IL is unlike NASA or Roscosmos, they are completely privately funded, uh, which was part of qualifications for, for winning this Google Prize. I have trouble believing that the state of Israel had no funding whatsoever over this project, but th- that's what they say. And it also seemed to have no other purpose other than national pride. There's a plaque on it saying, small country, big dreams, the people of Israel live and included a USB drive with like a few gigabytes of books for some reason. I'm not really sure how that could be useful, but kind of a nice idea, I guess. And it cost $100 million. It would have been the smallest spacecraft with the smallest budget. So yeah, it costed a lot less than a a NASA or a Chinese mission, but it also failed and took like six years to do so or more. The main funders were the South African-Israeli billionaire Morris Kahn, who threw $40 million of his $1 billion fortune, and Sheldon Adelson was another sponsor of the project. And Khan said they were going to try again. 
He said, quote, we started something and we need to finish it. We will reach the moon and we will put an Israeli flag on the moon. And, you know, they may eventually succeed alongside some of the other competitors, including two private U.S. firms and an Indian firm. But they they're not going to win the Lunar X Prize. That was a failure. The, the head of the, the project for Google, Chanda Gonzalez, described the project as demonstrating space was reachable by, quote, guys working in a garage or students at a university. So I, I see this as being kind of like an allegory for the myths of the neoliberal era in which the achievements of mankind are personalized into charlatans like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, a kind of Robinson Crusoe myth that Marx criticized in volume one of Capital, in which man is washed ashore on a desert island using only a few crude tools to, uh, to recreate the, the greatest achievements of civilization. In reality, such heights have always only been achieved by uh, not independent men, but what Marx calls the social relations of production. The 1969 moon landing, like the Soviet space program, um, despite all their militaristic and nationalist overtones, were state projects that represented the common achievements of American society and human civilization, a connection between the humble small steps of, uh, of working people and the great leaps of all mankind. And despite having roughly the same amount of time between Kennedy's declaration that they would land on the surface of the moon and the moon landing itself, exponentially better technology, um, the Lunar X Prize competitors attempted to replace these social relations of production with a small and well-funded team that could simply innovate themselves around this, this social aspect of, uh, of public funding and public support. So in the end, they still resorted to cooperating with SpaceX, which, which receives some public funding, and NASA's Cape Canaveral, which is a, you know, a U.S. public project, a government uh, installation, and still failed to do something not NASA and Roscosmos did decades ago multiple times. Um, so this is, this is like the, the neoliberal vision that you, know, you could just do it with enough money and enough people uh, and contrast that to Marx's vision in that same chapter where he says we could achieve a, quote, community of free individuals carrying on their work with the means of production in common in which labor power of all the different individuals is consciously applied as the combined labor power of the community. And I think the media reaction to the crash was also telling. There was a lot of disappointment from space journalist pundits cheerleading this exercise, even though it was basically pointless, and a lot of anti-Zionist mockery from everybody else. Mostly, I think it shows that the, the distance between these visions of Anne Randian colonies on Mars that Musk talks about and the reality of what the new space age is actually able to achieve is very vast. But that week, there was some good space news, some inspiring space news. There was a grainy image released created by the Event Horizon Telescope Project. It was an international collaboration of dozens of public universities and nationally funded observatories of a black hole. And of course, a black hole is something that is technically unseeable, but you can still observe it by the contours of its so-called event horizon, which are the stars and the gas being sucked into nothingness. And that, too, I think, is a very good metaphor for the neoliberal space age. Okay, we're back with Prolet Cult Episode 1, and our first guest on the show a scholar of the internet, folklore, and capitalism, Stephanie Monahan. Thank you for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. 
So you gave a presentation called Lights in the Sky. Can you tell, tell me a little bit, summarize the presentation, I guess? Sure. Um, so I was on a panel about uh, the quote-unquote post-truth era, and I think theorizing the web is a cool conference because people seem to be on a similar page of contesting um, the idea that we're living in an era of post-truth and that our concepts of truth were maybe a little hazy to begin with. So um, my talk was about UFOs, uh, specifically UFO photography and looking at them as a form of social media, but also UFOs as conveying um, affect in terms of people's relationship to them um, almost as subjects under neoliberal capitalism and why UFOs have resonated for people so much historically, especially in the U.S., and also why they're sort of having a little bit of a dip in terms of like wider conspiratorial thinking right now. Yeah, I, I was really glad to see that was the the thrust of the piece because that's that's basically why I'm interested in UFOs. People want to believe in something, and they don't want to believe in like the reality that they're told exists. They mm -hmm. want to believe in something um, a little bit para. What do you think of UFOs? How did you get interested in it? Why did you write about it? Well, I've always been interested in UFOs and aliens to some extent, mostly through like a pop culture. Lens. I shouldn't even use the word lens because I just mean I grew up on pop culture that had to do with aliens. Well, you and are wearing glasses, so technically true. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I feel like um, I'm really I've always been interested in folklore and urban legends and things like that and what they have to say about our relationship to history, mostly, and how um, even just participating in urban legends and folklore kind of tether us to our material world in unexpected ways. Um, but UFOs in particular, I think that there's a lot of, maybe compared to other conspiracies, quote unquote, there's a lot more they say about desire for the kind of world that we want to live in, not just necessarily like what's wrong with the world as is. And I find that very interesting, but also um, the aesthetics and like affects involved in UFO photography in particular, I find very um, haunting and cool. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of what brought me to the project, but also um, an experience that a lot of people in New York collectively shared this past winter and in kind of joking on social media about a potential alien invasion that was really just a Con Ed explosion in Queens. So that's kind of, that's immediately what kicked off this project for me. Well, thanks for the spoiler. I was, was hoping <laughs> you would tease it and get to it at the end, like you did in your presentation. But yeah, I, I slept through that. So what was that like? Like what, how did you experience that? Where were you? And what, what did you think? Uh, I was really lucky because I, I live in South Brooklyn, so I wouldn't be able to see it from my apartment, but I happened to be at, um, a holiday party in Kew Gardens where everyone is just sort of sitting around drinking and like watching horror movies on TV. And then all of a sudden the entire uh, night sky outside turns this like crazy teal blue. And it's funny because everyone is sort of experiencing this together, but it, because of social media immediately became this event that we also collectively were trying to find the answers to what it was. So everyone is on Twitter and citizen and trying to find like different pictures of what other people are seeing. But, um, what I kept seeing in my feeds were people 
joking about like oh uh you know 2018 was such a fucked up year we really hated it guess the aliens are here and really welcoming that and kind of sharing this collective desire for hey maybe it's all over and these otherworldly beings are finally descending upon us and then of course um well the lights itself were pretty wild because all of a sudden it's like someone flipped a light switch again and the whole sky just turned black Mm. how long did it i've seen this before and it was it was very freaky, but very brief. And I yeah. I looked it up later and and figured out what it was. But how how long did this one last? Was it just a moment? It was it was a few minutes. It probably felt longer than it actually was. Like there was enough time for people to get videos of it and really cool photos and kind of share it with people and speculate about what it was within the time that the sky was lit up. So I'm sure there's an actual answer for this somewhere, but. And no, nobody thought it like, was like... I would a, guess like three minutes. Wow. Yeah. The, what I saw was just, you know, two seconds tops. Mm-hmm. Um, so did, no one thought it was like a nuclear bomb or, or something like that? I'm sure some people thought that. The vibe at the party I was at was rather calm, but there was this sort of moment where I felt pretty calm about it, but um, there was also this feeling of, wow, what if this is something and then I'm like forever bound to these strangers at this house party mm. in this event? That kind of sucks. Um yeah, I'm sure some people did think it was a nuclear bomb, but nothing bad seemed to be happening. So. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you would know kind of fast. Um, <laughs> Maybe. I think the only time I ever had an experience like this was I was at some, some roof party, and there was uh, some some flying objects, and people were like, whoa, what are those? And, of course, me being me, I was immediately like, those are Chinese lanterns. <laughs> I identified them. They, uh-huh. I did not give them... A chance because they they wanted them to be UFOs. Yeah, they wanted to say that they had seen this, but I just said, "Sorry, it's like the thing that UFOs are like seventy percent of the time Chinese uh-huh. lanterns." And also, if you if you know anything about UFOs, then the the Con Ed Transformer explosion was very clearly not UFOs. So it was just more like a phenomena. Yeah, yeah, it was more like a phenomena. But I think that um. You're right. I think everyone sort of wants what they see in the sky to be UFOs, and they kind of have for as long as we've been taking photos of them. So uh, that was a really interesting part of your piece. Uh, is you, so obviously you turn to social media immediately, which I think a lot of a lot of people did. Uh, and I, I think eventually, like the NYPD or something, tweeted out like, "Don't worry, it's not an alien invasion." LOL. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also say that the history of UFOs, uh, even before the internet, you compare it to social media, like a pre-form of social media. Well, could you expand on that? Well, the first UFO photograph was taken by a Mexican astronomer in the late 1800s. So this kind of predates like the expansion of um, large-scale nationwide communications and newspapers. But modern UFO photography, as as we know it, and sort of just like the hazy um, shapes in the sky or lights in the sky dovetailed really nicely with expanded communications in the U.S. So these photographs were shared and disseminated and accounts of people shared and disseminated far, like much more widely than they would have been previously. And I feel like that there was a virality to UFO testimonies from the jump. Yeah, definitely. The actually the way the UFO phenomenon began, which you get at, get into in your piece, is from Kenneth Arnold's sightings. 
Uh, he was a Air Force pilot uh, on assignment in, what was it, North Dakota or one of those states? I think it may have been South Dakota, yeah. but yeah. Uh, and he, he saw some objects flying, and he, he said they're like uh, discs skipping on water, something like that. Yeah, he called he called them like saucers over water. Mm-hmm. And so he, he sold that story to, I forget the guy's name, but it was a guy who wrote a like a tabloid style incredible stories magazine that had all these paranormal stories that were supposedly true like ghost stories and such but this guy also had like a sci-fi magazine on the side so that one sort of got picked up by other tabloids and went viral and pretty quickly in combination with roswell which happened like just a a month afterwards or Mm -hmm. something like that in which the u.s government actually admitted like someone from the government actually said like we captured a flying saucer so th- those stories just went around the world in a viral kind of way through tabloids, and it created uh, eventually this subculture that that made what we would know now as zines, like independent publications. If you're if you're near any any place that has a zine library, and you go to stuff from the '90s and '80s, you'll see it's not all just punk zines and anarchist zines. There's like a lot of conspiracy theory stuff as well, and of course, that's where these photos would be shared before the internet or when the internet wasn't so common. And then, uh, you know, the, the other part of it is, is I think these photos, you know, in themselves have power, like uh, the poster from the X-Files of the, the UFO image, and I want to believe, was kind of like a 90s version of a meme, right? Mm-hmm. And you get into maybe like a, a sort of political interpretation of that. Um, do you want to go into that at all? Oh, yeah. Um I really love uh, Susan Lepselter's book. She wrote this book called um, The Resonance of Unseen Things. And she spent a few years uh, living in working in Rachel, Nevada, which is the town um, right outside Area 51. And she spends a lot of time in different meetups and support groups for abduction survivors. She's mostly speaking uh, more about abduction narratives, not just UFO sightings. Um, But she makes a connection between... The narratives of, oh, a cat just walked in. Um, (laughs) She makes a connection between the stories people told about surviving um, UFO abductions to the old um, abduction stories of like white women by Native Americans that circulated really widely um, during the early like settler colonial era of the U.S. And she makes a lot of uh she makes a lot of connections about um like intrusion of bodily autonomy and also white supremacy and how a lot of what people are saying in these UFO support groups kind of turn into distrust of the powers that be in a really abstract way kind of not really left or right politically but always seem to come back to like their bodily autonomy and their ownership of the land that they're living on in a way where they get really close to naming capitalism and they can't really quite get there and that really spoke to me a lot especially thinking about like ufos um in relation to other sort of conspiracy theories that are popping up here and there nowadays well there's definitely a sort of anti-authoritarianism to ufology especially the the aspect of it that believes the government's keeping truth from us because Mm -hmm. if there was this truth their authority would be undermined like why would we um, keep spending money on like the military if you know the aliens are just so much stronger than us? And like, why are we divided into nation states if there's like this higher power? 
Which is funny since so many early UFO photos are taken by people in the military and like working on military bases and having really no explanation for what they're seeing in the sky. And actually just, I think last week, the, uh, the Air Force changed their policy on UFO reporting. Um, they, they didn't like totally go into details about why, but apparently since that New York Times story came out in 2017, there's mm-hmm. been like a lot more pilots reporting mysterious phenomena, UFOs, so that they've had to like deal with it in a more concerted way than just, you know, calling people crazy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't know exactly what's going on there. Um, but, you know, getting back to Susan Lepselter, uh, I just want to read this quote from your, your presentation that I thought was really good. Um, in one sense, aliens conjure an image of postmodern power that seems to move in transmissions free of material constraints. It's a mode of power made manifest in connections and networks rather than in clear material production, a power that we are told endlessly accrues in flows instead of goods in the neoliberal age. Um, so how does that, do you think that resonates with, with your encounter at all? Sort of. Maybe, um, I think there is a, when I think of a lot of, um, UFO testimonials or, um, the testimonials that you read about people who either claim to have been abducted or claim to have seen UFOs, there's this articulation of powerlessness and there's simultaneously there, there's this like sense of defeat, but also a sense of embracing powerlessness. And a lot of that could be turned into some direction towards people in power, but for UFOs, I think it really gets at the sense of people feeling really lost and how everything is uh, networked and distributed and there is no, everything is the man or the powers that be and not something that you can directly organize against. And in our case of watching that transformer explosion, the disappointment articulated by people that I saw or people I was in the room with was just like, oh, it's just Kanye doing a shitty job. It's just another like, um, it's just another like infrastructural mishap of um this thing electricity that's pumped into our homes and like mismanaged and we have no control over it and of course it's just like shitty new york city being shitty Mm -hmm. (laughs) and another thing i thought about from that quote is uh scarcity like the you know the idea that basically I, i think if ufos exist as a material spacecraft that means there's free free energy is possible if it was that would just be the end of scarcity in general for capitalism to survive it could reintroduce scarcity in some way so mm-hmm. yeah you can go to another galaxy but only one company is allowed to do it and uh you have to pay to get there i mean you know way more about Posadas than i do but something i really like about the way that um that movement really articulated ufos is the the concept of well they would come here if we were an advanced enough civilization that actually, um, sorry, this cat's really cute, that actually um, distributed goods and used our resources effectively and wasn't a capitalist hellscape, but they won't because they have everything figured out and they're a socialist utopia, so why would they Why would they come hang with us? And I think that uh, I really like UFO uh, theories because I think it articulates more about the possibilities of the world that people could live in if they just actually came together and harnessed that potential. 
and even even something sometimes as silly as talking about UFOs can sort of unlock that a bit in people's minds. That's yeah, that's exactly what the Posadists, especially Dante Minazzoli, because um, Posadas just wrote that one essay, but but Minazzoli in the eighties wrote a book called "Why Haven't the Extraterrestrials Visited Us," mm-hmm. and that was a, basically the thesis of it is exactly what you just said, like. They're here, they're watching us, but we're like a threat to them right now. Like if, if they landed, they might, we might go to war with them. So they're, gonna, they're waiting for us to get out of this phase of capitalist nation states and nuclear war. And once we overcome that, then they're going to they're gonna make first contact, mm-hmm. which is exactly what happens to Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> So socialists love Star Trek. So, but yeah, you're totally right in your essay that that is like the extreme materialist form of ufology, um, materialist in like a Marxist sense. And then there's also the uh, kind of nuts and bolts school of ufology characterized by Stanton Friedman, who who basically talks about UFOs as this like, these are these material objects and we can like, we can study how they work and, um, what kind of energy they're using and where they come from and all this stuff. Uh, also, you know, to the stars academies, uh, um, Tom DeLonge and, um, <laughs> Robert Bigelow, they, they, they're literally trying to reverse engineer a UFO. They claim that they have like parts of it and they're going to figure out how they work. I think that they're full of shit, but, um, th- th- so there is like that materialist aspect to it, but I think ufology in general has moved away from like that pure, kind of nuts and bolts materialism. I mean, the Marxist part was like never really taken seriously, unfortunately, by anybody. Actually, uh, I think what's more common now um, is the ultra-terrestrial hypothesis. Are you familiar with this? Sort of. This is the Jacques Vallée. Yeah. Um, so he says that it doesn't make sense that UFOs are just like alien astronauts because you can't travel faster than the speed of light. Like. Mm-hmm. That's like a consensus now amongst physicists. So either that they're either they're using some kind of wormhole or like they're from another dimension or what valet seems to think is most likely is that this is this kind of collective psychological control mechanism combined with some sort of force of nature. That's just making us all kind of experience something at the same time for unknown purposes. He's not sure what it is, but he's worried in his book, Messengers of Deception, that it could be like a government plot to get us all like servile and trusting the state to defend us. But he also thinks that there's like a more liberatory possibility there, which is that it's kind of like a a natural control mechanism of like the earth guiding us in the right direction. I don't totally understand this stuff, but... Well, I definitely don't think it's the latter thing that he said, but <laughs> unfortunately. Well, what do you think? Um, like if UFOs are simultaneously getting us to all think the same thing, for what purpose? I kind of saw it as like, he's saying that the, the earth is like worried about how we're acting. So it's sending out this kind of phenomena to like make us act a different way. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a Gaia theory type thing. Yeah. And he doesn't say that's what it is, but from like some of his work since the 70s, I think that's sort of what he believes, this mm-hmm. control mechanism thing. Yeah. 
Well, off the top of my head, that that really reminds me of that that book, and they made a documentary out of it that's pretty good called Mirage Men, and how how the government was, in addition to admitting, like, yeah, we had we had a flying saucer at Roswell, really stoking conspiracies about it on purpose in order to like divert attention away from like nuclear testing that they were Mm -hmm. doing in the area that they didn't tell anyone about and didn't want anyone to know about. So weapons testing and things like that and how UFOs became a really um, easy way to just kind of kickstart and stoke a lot of conspiratorial thinking to turn away attention from what the government's actually doing, which is how I feel like a lot of a lot of conspiracy theories are functioning right now. Um, oh, the other thing that it makes me think of is um, like the pop culture saturation of aliens that um, feel like this is something that we are kind of doing to ourselves in a way where thinking about UFOs and aliens have kind of not declined, but sort of uh, plateaued while um, a lot of discussion of other conspiracy theories have kind of revved up but it's almost because we've become desensitized to aliens and thinking about UFOs. It's just become such a part of our pop culture landscape and what people your age and my age grew up with that I feel like it's just sort of a given for a lot of people is not something that actually exists. Like we've, we've internalized like the, the fictionalization of them in such a way that it has, we have sort of like defanged it as a way of thinking about power and our relationship to it. Yeah, I think you're totally right there. It's sort of reached this ironic moment where people don't necessarily believe in it or disbelieve in it. It's just this kind of cool thing. And I think it represents, uh, I think generally it represents a optimism towards the other or um, something that's outside of this reality. Mm -hmm. Um, that we don't necessarily believe in, but we, we open the door to it in a way, Mm -hmm. uh, which is way different than how it was in the nineties when it was, you know, after communion, um, and, and, uh, all of the, uh, the fear of abduction, uh, and invasion with independence day, people were generally like afraid of aliens, like greys were these like monsters that were coming to take us away. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think people really are afraid of them anymore. Do you? No, I'm th- I'm thinking specifically about how like the first poster I ever had on my bedroom wall was the poster from Independence Day of the huge UFO descending on the White House. Yeah. But I, I liked being scared by those sorts of things. And I thought about alien invasions a lot. Um, but now I think like the big alien movie of the past few years is something like Arrival where the main crux of the drama is just like they're here and like they're not you know, necessarily benevolent or threatening. We just can't communicate with them. And it just becomes this whole, that sort of metaphor for the other, which maybe is better. But again, I think also waters down a lot of the, um, like political analysis we can do of texts like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but also I think that, um, I think it also speaks to people's different uh, types of optimism about technology right now as technology being something really positive. And like you said, like to the stars Academy, like we're going to, we're going to make a UFO and we're a bunch of, you know, scientists who used to work in all these other different positions who have come together 
plus Tom DeLonge, I guess, to uh, to um, get to the real like material, like scientific basis of how to like build these machines and things like that. And people feel people feel a lot more positively about that than they did when like the first photographs of UFOs were being taken. There was still this kind of like spiritual, almost like a cultish relationship and distrust of technology of like cameras show us things that we're not supposed to see as opposed to like when we look at the black hole photo it's like we have mastered technology and like gotten this photograph of something that you can't see and we're really excited about it as opposed to thinking like maybe we're not supposed to understand these things in the world that's interesting i thought of maybe like the the first wave of of ufos in the the 40s and 50s as i mean i think there's different reactions but i think a lot of people thought they were warning us that we can't have nuclear war because people really thought there's going to be a nuclear war Mm -hmm. especially crashing near near roswell near the where nuclear testing was going on um but i think maybe not everybody thought that yeah (laughs) um and and so contrasting that to uh other conspiracy theories i think uh you know like new world order, new world order stuff, Illuminati stuff. Um, that I think has really effectively taken anti-authoritarian sentiments, uh, you know, distrust of the government, uh, of the elites, and spun it in this right-wing direction. Uh, and and you say UFOs, UFO conspiracies tend to be kind of a refuge from that because obviously you can find um, far-right ufologists. There's probably way more of them than there are far left ufologists but you think in general it's kind of like this apolitical thing is that right i think it depends i don't want to like say concretely yes it's apolitical because i don't think it's apolitical but i think that um when it comes down to like interviews you can read with a lot of people who have reported their ufo sightings or um, potential abductions and how they've how they really thought about those experiences and what it what it means for them and their relationship to the world around them. I would consider that they come together in a way that doesn't seem to doesn't seem to hinge on already having like a right or left ideology. They're kind of like discovering their relationship to power through these stories and through these shared experiences. And yeah, I think there's a lot of right wing ufologists and a lot of conspiracy theories in general definitely just easily become weaponized for right-wing ideology but there seems to be more of like i don't know there seems to be some sort of more like communal emotional bond going on over over ufos that i think that kind of contributes to the reason why we haven't heard a lot about ufo communities in recent years because a lot of what's taking up oxygen in the conspiracy space is like really intensely politicized kind of awful groups mm-hmm. and i don't know well that and, and flat earthers oh and flat earthers but <laughs> <laughs> but i feel like flat earthers are, are trump supporters right not all of them, but I don't know. I haven't done as much research into flat earth as I probably should, but they, but they seem to be, uh, yeah, I, th- I don't know. I think they lean kind of right. UFO people though. I think they're more likely to be like hippies or green party people or something yeah. like that. <laughs> Although, you know, you obviously you get all mm-hmm. types. 
Although it's weird because um, at least when it comes to uh, UFO and abduction believers out west, there's also like intense distrust of governmental agencies like uh, the EPA, like the Environmental mm, Protection yep. Agency and things like that. So there is sort of this weird, yeah, this sort of hippieish side to it. And then also this like... Um, we own this, we own this land and sort of this, uh, I don't know, this old school right wing sort of viewpoint. Also, I kind of like what the UFO community does to the, to government agents with the men in black, Mm -hmm. like the men in black in, in sort of standard UFO lore are not just these, these government spooks who drive around and like threaten you and tell you didn't see anything. But they're also kind of like these weird alien interdimensional beings that are like uh, the kind of like these weird demon things that come here and haunt you uh, after you've seen something. Mm-hmm. So it it, tu- it kind of turns like the entire government into this like interdimensional mirage. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which I don't think is a healthy thing, but <laughs> it's kind of entertaining. But let's get more into uh, some... You know, terrestrial politics, if you don't mind. <laughs> okay. So you're part of a new caucus in the DSA. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it does have some links to the Posadist caucus. Tell me how that, that evolution occurred. We, um, I don't know if there's a, a, a straight evolution. There, um, there are some former uh, Posadist caucus members. They're experts at making memes. And I did, uh, in advance of this interview, I did uh, ask them what our official line on UFOs and aliens are, even though, you know, we don't have it in our points of unity, but everyone agrees that aliens exist and UFOs are good. So I think I'm comfortable saying that that is the official caucus line on that. <laughs> and so what is the Emerge Caucus? So... Uh, we're a bunch of organizers within NYC DSA that started talking to each other in a smaller group about a year ago and have since um, come together to sort of formulate our uh, shared political thoughts into um, our points of unity. And basically, we want to stay local in NYC DSA. We don't really want to... Um, we're not really about like grabbing power in the organization. We just want to um, focus on emergent struggles where they come up in our community and kind of um, pushing back against like a class first analysis and incorporating the lots of uh, individual struggles of different communities. Can you give some examples? So we are uh, currently building out a program. We're onboarding new people who have signed up to the caucus based on our points of unity. So we don't have uh, specific campaigns that we're outwardly supporting yet. But um, some things that we've been thinking about are what are things that we can work on in terms of like independent working class institutions? Is there a way to organize um, subway riders and things like that? Um, Decriminalizing sex work, uh, figuring out... um, pretty much just like what are community needs and what are different community organizations that we can collaborate on with and really give support to instead of just uh, doing more like NYC DSA led campaigns. Um, I noticed that there's a very nicely illustrated page for (laughs) it. Um, 
can you tell them where you ch- could check that out? Yeah. Emerge.biz. I'm just kidding. It's uh, <laughs> dsaemerge.org. And we worked very hard on it. <laughs> Sean KB is jumping in to say something. This is my apartment, so I'm doing a Kanye right here. Uh, I just <laughs> this is like not to, a democracy. <laughs> I just like to jump in and say that uh, Jamie Peck is not here to defend herself. She's at a 24-hour drone fest upstate. However, she is a founding member as well of Emerge and did help to write those points of unity. So uh, definitely check out Emerge, folks. It's an exciting, exciting thing. And now I'm out. <laughs> So I'm guessing we're going to be hearing a lot more about Emerge on the Antifada, uh, but we probably won't be hearing such a uh, paranormal perspective on it. So <laughs> thank you so much for being on this first episode of Prolet Cult. Is there anything else you want to add? Not really. Thanks so much for having me. This is very exciting as the first episode. Yeah. And I'm glad we had a uh, creepy black cat in here to spice things up a bit. Yeah. Actually... I, I uh, one one of the uh, theories on abductions is that it's kind of like the modern incarnation of um, the succubus, mm-hmm. uh, which used to take <laughs> the form of a black cat. You'd wake up with a black cat on your chest, like a demon cat, and it would uh, smother you or steal your soul or something. Yeah, that did happen with my cat one night, where she <laughs> almost suffocated me. But she's like twenty one pounds, so it's pretty easy for her. All right. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Prolet Cult. Um, I'll put links to stuff about the Emerge Caucus in the show notes. And if you have any thoughts or comments on the show, my Twitter handle is at SpaceProl. And you can support the show or join our Discord community by becoming a patron of the Antifada at patreon.com slash the Antifada. And if you live in the Seattle area... Come see me talk about Marxist ufology on Sunday, May 12th at the Vermilion Cafe and Bar as part of Red May, which is a month-long series of talks, panels, discussions, and interventions. That weekend will also feature talks from Bhaskar Sankara, Kate Doyle Griffiths, and Asad Hader. For more info, check out redmayseattle.org. This is A.M. Gitlet signing off.